0: Well if you will, if you will remember from our study last week it ended with Jesus leaving Nazareth. Uh, the people there were unable to reconcile the fact that the carpenter's boy was claiming to be that that carpenter's boy that they had watched grow And they couldn't believe that he was the one claiming to be the long-awaited king who had come to establish the long-awaited kingdom. And because of that lack of reconciliation, they wanted him to provide a sign, to prove that he was who he said he was, and to prove that he would do what he said he would do. And of course, we saw that Jesus said no, because it wouldn't matter whether he had given them a sign or not. They weren't going to believe he was the one he claimed to be. Having said that, he then he then pushes their I I said last week, he pushes their buttons of pride and he says, I'm I'm going elsewhere. The message that I have to preach and to proclaim is one not just for Nazareth, but it's one for all of Galilee and beyond. And not only that, it's not just for Jews, it's for Gentiles as well. He was going to go where people didn't have to see to believe, but would believe and therefore see. And so having insulted them and inflamed their pride, as I mentioned, they sought to kill him. And the last verse we read last week in verse 30 said that he passed through their midst and went away. This week we pick up him arriving where he had gone. He arrives in Capernaum. And the people in Capernaum respond very differently than the people of Nazareth respond, even though Their motivations were were similar. They may not have wanted to kill him, but as we'll see, they still wanted him to be someone other than who he was and to do something other than what he came to do. But Jesus will say, I came to preach. I must preach. The outline in the back of your bulletin has three points to it. We're going to look at Christ's authority Christ's power and Christ's priority, right? His authority, His power, and His priority. Before we begin, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, the end of preaching, as I've prayed for several weeks now, um, we know to be Christ and to impart His truth. So we would ask that in these moments that Your Spirit... And by your Spirit, you would awaken our attention and refresh us and encourage us and convict us and comfort us as we see him and hear his gospel tonight. I arrive here again tonight and admit uh, that I am weak and needy and unfit in and of myself for the task that you've called me to fulfill. So I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your Spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. I have prayed, as I always do, for my preparation. And I pray tonight as we begin that you would allow me and enable me to communicate with clarity and fluency and fervency and grace. For the sake of Christ and his church, I ask these things. Amen. Amen. Well, even though the change of location changes, the priority that we identified last week doesn't change at all. He arrives at Capernaum, and he goes to the synagogue, and there we find him again tonight having been chosen to teach. And on that that particular Sabbath day, as he preached, we find that the people of Capernaum responded and actually recognized and acknowledged something beyond what those in Nazareth had. Right? Both groups um, reacted to his teaching in a similar way in that they were intrigued by the content, they were very impressed with the delivery, and they also were amazed at how gracious his words were. But there was, there was something about those in Capernaum, they went a step farther than those in Nazareth. in verse 32, Luke says that they were astonished at his teaching for his words possessed authority. They recognized that Jesus was more than that carpenter boy. And they also recognized that he was more than your average rabbi. And that's because he wasn't simply teaching and preaching about God. Because we know that he was the Word, who was in the beginning with God and was God. He was the Word made flesh, and so when he taught and when he preached, it was with authority. His Word had authority. He spoke with authority because he himself had authority. He didn't have to refer to rabbis or scribes. He didn't have to consult commentaries or confessions and old dead theologians or older wiser pastors. He would simply do things like grab a scroll, unroll it, find a passage and point to it and said, "That's me." And again, he did it with authority. He did it with an unwavering confidence because he had authority in and of himself. As he would say prior to his ascension, after his resurrection, prior to his ascension, he said, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. And he spoke in that way. When he taught and when he preached, it was obvious he and his word possessed authority. And because of that, you and I have some questions that we need to ask we, we come to them naturally. Questions like, how do we respond to the Word of God? Are we astonished and amazed when we hear it preached, when we read it, when we hear it read, when we study it? Do we recognize, do we recognize it as authoritative and for the authority that it possesses? As we learn in our study of Hebrews, God has spoken Once and for all and revealed himself fully and finally in the person of the Lord Jesus. And we have his word. And it is through his word, this written word, that that revelation is made known to us. The Bible is more than a book that contains the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. And has authority. All scripture is authoritative and sufficient. Old and New Testaments and it's sufficient as far as what we are to believe regarding salvation and how we're to grow in godliness and how we can glorify and enjoy him, which, of course, is our chief end. But there are more questions. Do we trust it? Do we submit to it? These days, you've heard me say before, it's, it seems to be catching on that it's more spiritual and exciting to have a direct word from the Lord? Right? It's more spiritual to have a vision or a dream or a word of knowledge. And many, many people today would rather have the authority in and of themselves rather than to bend their wills to the authority of God's word. They'd rather have the authority themselves and say things like, God told me. And God gave me a word. But the rea- reality is that God desires for us, it's his desire for us to trust and rest in the ministry, the ongoing work and ministry of the Holy Spirit, who illuminates, who illuminates his word and, and enlightens our minds to the truth of the scripture through which he himself sanctifies us. And brothers and sisters, we must remain diligent. And not forsake Christ and His authority in an effort to be more spiritual. His Word is authoritative. So when we read it, when we study it, when we hear it read, when we hear it preached, and submit ourselves to it, right? we're we're to do those things so that it influences everything about us. That it influences our thoughts and emotions and words and actions. And we share it with others and encourage them to do the same. And because it's authoritative, in the words of Philip Ryken, we should not be content to simply befriend people and to serve them with the love of Christ, although we must at least do that. But... We should have a pressing, compelling desire for people to hear God's word. We should encourage them to read it. We should invite them to study it. We should bring them to hear it preached. And as we have opportunity, we should help to carry it around the world so that it can be its authoritative and powerful work of ext- so that it can do its authoritative and powerful work of extending the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Right? The word is authoritative. But authority is not the only quality of Christ and His Word, and therefore His preaching and teaching. We see also that He and His Word also are powerful. Luke says a man was demon-possessed, and he's in the synagogue, and he's listening to Christ preach. And in the middle of whatever it is that Jesus is preaching, in the middle of the exposition, the demon cries out, Ha! What have you to do with us? Jesus of Nazareth, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And whatever it was he was teaching causes this demon to lash out. He doesn't like what's being said, and he's been provoked to the point that he's screaming, leave us alone. Why are you bothering us? You've come to destroy us, haven't you? And it's really more of a statement than it is a question. He knows. He knows what he's come to do, because A, he knew who Jesus was. He calls him the Holy One of God. He knows that he's the Messianic King. He knows he's the servant of God. He's no, he knows he's the one who's been anointed by the Holy Spirit. And B, he knows what he's come to do. He knows he's come to defeat Satan. And he knows he's come, in Paul's words, to disarm and triumph over the rulers and authorities and cosmic powers over the present darkness and spiritual forces of evil and put them to open shame. Jesus has come for him. And he's scared. I think that's why he uses the word us. Right, he's doing what any kidnapper does with a hostage. Right, hides behind him like a shield, hoping you know it's us. It's you know hoping, hoping that with the man in front of him, that Jesus won't do anything because Jesus wouldn't want to hurt the man to get to the demon. And Luke says, Jesus rebuked him. He said, be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him having done no, or done the man or done him no harm. Without hesitation, without any kind of incantation or rituals or exorcism rites, Jesus simply speaks with authority and with power. His power is made manifest, and he simply says, silence, get out. And not only did the demon leave, he didn't harm the man. And everybody's looking around, everybody's going, what in the world is this word? What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the answer to the question is very simple. It's the same word that created and sustains the universe. It's the word of the living God that has power. And, of course, this isn't or wouldn't be the only time that he would exercise the authority and the power uh, to to, uh, exercise Satan's minions. We see down in verse 21, Luke mentions other similar occurrences happened. And we're going to see this throughout the gospel And in those instances, down in verse 21, just like the first, the demons knew who he was. The demons call him the Son of God. They knew he was the Christ. And in each case, as Jesus is casting them out and rebuking them, he tells them to be quiet. He tells them to close their mouths. And it's not a it's not a request, it's not, you know, please be quiet. Having been anointed by the Spirit, Jesus acted with authority and power and instantaneously restrained and muted each and every one without a struggle. He wasn't playing around. And there was nothing they could do. And the question sometimes that comes to our minds when we read that is, why, why silence them? Why would he silence them? It doesn't seem to be a matter of him not wanting word to spread. In this case, it doesn't seem to be a matter of him not not wanting others to know who he is. Because the quickest way to keep people from understanding who he was and from word spreading would just be to not do anything authoritative and powerful. So what was he doing? couple of commentators. One said, "The most likely reason why the silence might have been commanded, are that, uh, is that demons represented an undesirable endorsement. Jesus didn't want demons telling others who He was. Another said, Satan and his demons may, for tactical reasons, sometimes say what is true, or they may be forced against their will to say what is true. And they never say it out of loyalty to the truth or with any intention of leading people to believe the truth. And Athanasius says he did this to keep them from sowing their own wickedness in the midst of the truth. He also wished to get used to, or he also wished us to get used to never listening to them even though they seem to speak the truth. And when, you, when we put all of that together, the bottom line is their acknowledgement of who Jesus was and is wasn't and never would be a confession of faith, but simply a statement of fact and a perfect illustration. All of them together would have been perfect illustrations of James's statement concerning true faith and trembling demons. Listen to James' words. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. And then he says, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And what we have to do is pause. Pause. And allow that to sink in. Right, there are times, right, we we preach the gospel and we will and we will comfort the afflicted, but there are times in the midst of of the word of God and as it's preached that we must afflict the comfortable. And these or, or this is one of those occasions. We need to allow, we need to allow that warning to reverberate in our ears. It is possible to state what is true. It is possible to state the truth and it not be a confession of faith. Strong words of J.C. Ryle. He says, we may go on all our lives saying, I know that, I know that, and sin at last into hell with the words on our lips. So I must ask, do you know the truth about Jesus and merely say things that are true about Jesus? Or do you have a saving interest in Jesus? Is your faith in Jesus? Is he your only hope for salvation? One of the ways we know we have a saving interest is when our faith is a working faith. Right? That's the passage from James. And we know we have a saving interest when our faith works, which means when we strive, and strive to obey, you know, submit ourselves and strive to obey the Word of God. Our confession states in paragraph 2 of chapter 14, it says, By this faith a Christian believes to be true what whatsoever is revealed in the Word, for the authority of God himself speaking therein, and acts differently upon that which each particular passage thereof contains, yielding obedience to the commands, trembling at the threatenings, and embracing the promises of God for this life and that which is to come. The principal acts of saving faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life By virtue of the covenant of grace. Children, I I wanna help just a minute, okay? And I want you to think about it in this way If I asked you, Does mom and dad love you? And you said yes, you would be telling the truth, right? You would be making a statement. A fact that is true. But one of the ways that we would know that you believe that to be so and are trusting that to be so would be through through your striving to obey them. Doing what it is they've asked you to do. Because as you do what they've asked you to do, you are not only testifying in a way that you know that your parents love you and want the best for you but you're also saying I love you too this is why before anyone comes to the table we ask are you a sinner and are you trusting in Jesus to be your Lord and Savior and then we also ask do you promise to strive to live a holy life or obedient life by the power of the spirit. We don't expect perfection of course. Because you know what your obedience doesn't cause your mom and dad to love you any more or any less. They love you period. But again, your obedience and striving for obedience expresses your trust and faith in that love and also your love for them. So we don't expect perfection, but the desire to obey and the striving to obey is evidence of saving faith. So I go back to the question that I asked earlier. Do Do you believe in Jesus? Is that a statement of fact, or is it a confession of faith? Well, the word of Christ is not only powerful within the spiritual realm, it's also powerful in the physical realm, and you'll see in verses 38 to 40, Luke describes physical healings that Christ performed, again, by the word of his power, and in verses 38 and 39, we see this, or Luke describes a moment in Peter's uh, mother-in-law's house. She's got this dangerously high fever, and everyone in the house is concerned about her. And they, and they beseech Jesus, please heal her, please heal her. There's a belief and trust that he can heal her, and he does. Just as he would a little later on in, in the gospel, as he com- at commands the sor- storm to stop and it stops, and as he commands the winds to cease and they cease, he commands the fever to leave her, and it does and notice her response she does a couple of things that are really interesting one she immediately rises up which means her healing was instantaneous complete and total i'm just going to let leave that there okay and secondly secondly she began to serve them so she's not healed and then stand in the middle of the room and bask in the light of the fact that she was the center of attention because she's been healed. No, she immediately is overcome with gratitude and then begins to serve. She was grateful for what the Lord had done, so she began to serve His His people that are there in the room, and her needs having been met, she began meeting the needs of others. And of course... That word began to spread, about His healing began to spread, just like it had spread about His exercising uh, those that had demons. And once the Sabbath's over, notice the, kind of the timing there, the sun had gone down. Once the Sabbath's over and everybody can bring uh, their family and friends who are sick or have some kind of disease or disability, they begin bringing them to Jesus, and He heals them all lays hands on them and heals them. And there's overwhelming consensus that the healing still takes place with the power of His Word. And the laying on of hands is simply the compassion that He's expressing as God in the flesh. Remember from Leviticus, right? God could not be approached. He was behind the veil. Well, God remains veiled here, but He's veiled in flesh. And those who had been kept at arm's length are now now able to come. And be near, and to be touched, and to be healed. They're in the presence of a compassionate God. But while this is a part of his ministry, and a part of the fulfillment of what we read last week in, in Psalm 61, um, what he quoted there in Nazareth, that this was not his first priority. Yes, we are going back to that because it's here in the text. We're repeating what we did last week. It wasn't his priority. Look at verse 42. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. so this is what I was referring to when we first began. Those in Capernaum were just like those in Nazareth. Right? They responded differently, right? The, those in Nazareth wanted him dead. Those in Capernaum wanted him to stay and not leave. So those in Nazareth are running him out of town, trying to run him over a cliff. Those in Capernaum are saying, stay, stay. We want you to, to remain. But both were doing the same thing. The people in Capernaum were doing what the people in Nazareth did. The people in Capernaum wanted him to be who they wanted him to be. They wanted him to do what they wanted him to do. They had an agenda. Come, stay with us. They had a plan. That they had created. They wanted him to follow that plan. He was obviously one with authority and power. And they wanted him on their side. And so they, they were seeing their needs be met. And they wanted more of their needs met. But they also probably wanted every one of their whims to be fulfilled as well. And Jesus responds in the same way. That's why he responds in the same way. He says, no. And in verse 43 he says, I must preach. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for that purpose. That is why I am here. His priority has not changed from Nazareth to Capernaum. It was proclamation. It was teaching. It was preaching of the good news of the kingdom of God or the gospel. It was why he was sent. The power he was exhibiting through those miracles and through those exorcisms, he was, those things that he was doing was simply to reveal that the divine authority and power of God's kingdom was present in their midst in the person of Christ. And so his exercising, his gospel ministry was word focused and it was, it was a ministry of the word, right? His exercising and his, and his healing were both ministries by his word. Well, so was the message of salvation. It came by his word. And brothers and sisters, it continues to come that way today. Why must he preach? Because God works through the ministry of his spirit and the word to bring salvation to his people. And that, that plan is, is not old and it, it continues to be his plan today. i since, you know, since Luke is repeating it, I'll repeat it as well. We, right, Christ came to proclaim the provisions of riches and treasure beyond the value of earthly money or possessions. He came to proclaim the immeasurable and invaluable grace and forgiveness and the heavenly treasure that moth and rust will not destroy, cannot destroy. And He came proclaiming an eternal inheritance, an inheritance that, that He secured and that God the Father is keeping for us, and it's more than any silver or gold. He's come proclaiming every spirit, every, the offer of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places that is free, a gift to be received. He came to proclaim liberty and freedom and release and deliverance from bondage. He came to deliver people from their bondage of sin. He came to offer forgiveness through the payment of their debt by another. He came to proclaim the release and the freedom of captivity, from captivity of the souls and hearts and minds of people. And he also came to proclaim freedom and liberty for those from, from the oppression that some were experiencing through their own sin, through the guilt of their own sin, and then through no fault of their own, through sins that had been perpetrated against them. Again, setting them free. He had, he had come to proclaim sight to the blind, to offer sight to the blind. To proclaim the removal of the veil so that, so that people could see that bright and vivid glory of God and the colors that are there when there is life in His name. Those who were, those who were in darkness and, and shadows have now he came to proclaim, have now seen a light. And of course, he was the greater prophet and he was the savior. So he not only came proclaiming, but he came to secure those things, to deliver those things personally. And that message wasn't just for Nazareth. It wasn't just for Capernaum. It was for Galilee Galilee and beyond. It was for men and women, young and old, rich and poor, slave or free, Jew or Gentile. It was, I said it last week, it was an inclusive message, one that we proclaim indiscriminately. And of course, that leads to our final point here. Like last week, Jesus' first priority was proclamation. It is ours as well. Again, in the words of Dr. Riken, today many people do the same thing with the church that they do with Jesus. They turn it into something other than what God has called it to be. They turn it into a political agenda or an entertainment venue or a social project. Anything and everything other than what it is intended to be. A community that is gathered to hear God's Word. Once we hear the Word, It has an impact on everything else because it changes the way we live. But our first priority is to preach the good news. And brothers and sisters, that has been and will continue to be our commitment to one another and to the community in which we've planted ourselves and in which God has planted us. Because it is the best way, I'm not saying it's the only way, but it is the best way, first and foremost, the best way that we can love our neighbor, period. May this always be so. Let's go to the Lord in pray.